tomorrow on What's on Joe Mind. You know what, Mike? It reminds me a lot of, man, old school. I wanted to be like, you know what, Gary? You know, but it's... special edition of What's on Joe Mind. It is January 11. We are just past the new year. Hope everybody had a great holiday season. Joining me this evening, it's not even an us, but joining me this evening on the big program, old friend of the show, Arun Singh is back with us just to gab and talk about stuff. How you doing, Arun? I'm doing great. This is like when Havoc returned to the X-Men after they went all new and all different, but he still made his debut back when it was just the OG team. I feel really special. That's the geekiest reference I could think of. But this is, uh, I'm really stoked. I'm glad to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me back. And I will say, actually, many times I have told people about the kindness and the welcomingness of the uh, G.I. Joe community because there was many a panel I hosted when I was at Marvel and at a Comic-Con where I'd finished the panel. I had just hosted a Marvel panel. And someone would come up to me and say, hey, you're that guy from What's on Joe Mind, right? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm also the guy who just moderated the panel from the, for the Marvel stuff right now. And uh, <laughs> I've, I have so many incredible G.I. Joe gifts from random fans of uh, the show. But I hope we're still listening, and I hope we're doing well. And I will say the uh, G.I. Joe fan community has been so warm and embracing over the years. And has stayed in touch, oddly, and been so supportive over the years. And, you know, it was uh, really great to just get the invite to be back, so hopefully I don't bore you all too much. So, Arun, you said you've, you've been with Marvel. Go, go ahead, give us the Arun Singh resume. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I think last time we chatted, it's been a bit. I was with uh, Marvel, heading up PR for both the comic side and then the Marvel television side when Marvel television launched. So I had the pleasure of working with the cast of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agent Carter, Daredevil, Jessica Jones. And uh, that was a really great time. And then uh, in 2015, got a great offer from their West Coast team. So I joined Sci-Fi, got to work on awesome shows like Face Off, 12 Monkeys, Childhood's End, Killjoys, Dark Matter. It was absolutely a blast being there. But in 2016, or in 20, yes, in 2016, I came up to join Boom Studios and return to the world of uh, comics, but also join a company that was expanding into the film and TV side as well and be there on the ground floor. So I joined here as vice president of Mark, and I've been here since. And so if you're not familiar with Boom Studios, we make a lot of cool original comics. If you're a fan of Grant Morrison and all his comic stuff, we have a called Klaus, which is a Grant Morrison badass, crazy action uh, origin of Santa Claus, which is so cool. Yeah. And we also do a bunch of licensed comics. So we just recently, well, this month, we'll be releasing uh, on January 23rd, Buffy the Vampire Slayer number one, which is like a reimagining of Buffy a la Ultimate Spider-Man. If you guys are fans of that comic, we... Uh, Recently launched a Firefly comic, which continues the television series, in can all in canon. We also published a wildly popular Power Rangers comic, which if you're like a superhero fan, probably is what you know us for, because that Power Rangers comic has been an incredible seller for us. It's also really awesome, and introduced a whole bunch of new Power Rangers. I'm really thrilled to be a company that, that really makes comics for all age groups. We do licensed comics with Cartoon Network properties like Adventure Time and Steven Universe, Nickelodeon properties like uh, Rocco's Modern Life and Rugrats. Jim Henson properties like uh, Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. But it's a really cool mix of all that stuff you know, and we create a lot of great new ideas and stories here. And it's so I'm thrilled to be here. I work with a really great team. And uh, yeah, so back in the world of comics. And there's another cool comics thing I know we're going to touch on in a bit, but that's where I've been. If you guys follow me on social media, you know I've had a few different health-related surgeries since then. I only specify that because living in L.A., people get surgeries all the time for non-health reasons. And, <laughs> you know, uh, you never know. Come and, on, uh, yeah, but no, life is great. Uh, the wife is great. The, cat, the cats are great. And, I, and my Arashikage tattoo has sparked many a conversation, including uh, recently here in L.A., I was at a CrossFit training event with WWE wrestler Seth Rollins and his trainer, Joshi G., along with uh, superstars uh, Becky Lynch and uh, Seamus. To be clear, it's an event I paid to go to. We're not all like bros. 
But uh, at the end of it, when we were doing photos, Joshy uh, grabbed my forearm. He's like, is that a G.I. Joe tattoo? And we just started talking about G.I. Joe. So G.I. Joe continues to be like this universal language of passion and fandom that I actually find is really cool now because I feel like G.I. Joe is also like this kind of cool secret code for all of us who are fans. Like we instantly connect in a way because you can't just be like a casual G.I. Joe fan these days. If you're a G.I. Joe fan, you're a G.I. Joe fan. And I think that's really cool because it bonds you in a different way. It's kind of like um, me being Canadian, being a hockey fan in America. If you're a hockey fan, you're a hockey fan and you just bond differently. Yeah, I didn't realize that again till I started living in a hockey town. Yeah. Uh, man, here in St. Louis, granted the Cardinals are king, but even when the Rams were here, like the Blues were that cult kind of mm-hmm. fandom. If hockey could go 15 months a year, they would watch. They would watch yeah. every night. Yeah, I remember John Hamm came out as like a big hockey fan, and he's a St. Louis guy, I guess. And like, that's just cool to me. Like, hockey is what, probably the fourth biggest sport in the country. Like, I ain't going to pretend like it's king, but. Those fans are passionate. I know that competitively, the percentage of which they fill up arenas every night is higher than you'd expect. I think they're one of the top sports in this country for like how much they fill up the seats every night in those stadiums, yeah. arenas. It's one of those things that continues to grow. And if once you once you get a taste of it, you can't not be a fan. And to me, G.I. Joe is that. Like Once you get a taste of G.I. Joe, there is a special kind of happiness that G.I. Joe elicits in you. I think we all on this podcast in this previous incarnation really dug, especially dug John Chu's director's cut of G.I. Joe Retaliation. And every so often, man, I put that Best Buy exclusive DVD and like my PlayStation to watch it. And I got to tell you, there is a joy of seeing Joe Colton on screen. We can debate, you know, like I'm sure people have different feelings on the film, but I saw a movie with Joe Colton and Roadblock doing gun Fu and Flint and Lady J and Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow fighting back to back. And you know what? I don't care if you liked or if you think the movie's good or bad. Like, I respect your opinion. Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow fought back-to-back live action in my lifetime. I'm good. That makes me happy. (laughs) (laughs) And that's epic. And, like, the way that people sometimes feel about some superhero films are like, look, I'm not a Harry Potter guy. But they'll be like, that Harry Potter moment. I'm like, look, I don't know what a Horcrux is. But let me tell you what Rashikage Ninja is. That's cool to me. You can't sit there and say that either of the live-action G.I. Joe movies were classics. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they made a heap of money. So somebody went, and somebody enjoyed it, and somebody went again. And these movies keep getting picked up to get shown on cable 24-7. I don't think that since 2009, since the first movie came out, you probably can't go 24 hours without one of these movies being on cable somewhere. Obviously, they make enough money that that enough eyes are getting pulled to TV screens still. They're not they're not bad, and I think we get sucked into it some as fans because they weren't the end-all, be-all, everything that we wanted a G.I. Joe movie to be, and it colors it a little bit for us. Sure, there's some work to be done there. You know, the, the first one famously got held up by the writer's strike, and the second one, perhaps even more famously, if you're listening to that episode of the show, got held up by the failings of the first one. Again, I'm not defending them as Academy Award-winning drama action masterpieces, but they're fun movies. You know, Mike, having seen Bumblebee, which I absolutely loved, and in a lot of ways was like the most Transformers movie I can imagine possible, I I won't pretend that the Transformers movies, uh, the Michael Bay ones, were my thing. But here's what we can say objectively. A ton of people enjoyed them enough to infuse billions of dollars into that franchise, right? And and mm-hmm. by the way, this is a conversation you know I had years ago, but they put a ton of money into those movies, and people derived joy from them. And for them, it was the right version of Transformers that made them interested. And they did something that fundamentally changed the paradigm, which was, you know, Michael Bay said the first movie was really about a boy and his dog. He said the dog happens to be a transforming robot car. And making Bumblebee a folk, the focus character in your entry point is a very different thing than any of us would have ever thought. And you know what? It worked. And what it did is it gave Transformers decades more of life in a different way than it would have had previously. Would we have transformers like g1 reissues in walmart and that's scale right now if not for those movies no would the idw have produced some of those amazing stories that john barber and company produced over there without those movies no i think that is sometimes we have to look at things and say maybe it's not for us that doesn't make it bad maybe it's not exactly the way we wanted it that doesn't make it bad and also 
maybe we did enjoy it and that doesn't make it good either, right? I think sometimes we all get so obsessed with do we think it's right or not, we just forget, like, did I have a good time? I had a great time with the theatrical cut of G.I. Joe Retaliation. That nin- If you don't enjoy the ninja fight scene on the mountain, I, you're crazy. It yeah, still holds up really dead. well. You're dead. That's, that's all it is. <laughs> yeah. That's not yeah. even making a statement. Like, you have no pulse. You are clinically dead. Yeah, I, I would argue that biggest downside was as much as we all got excited about that fight, we just saw too much of it in the trailers. But that got people to the theater. I always think about it like that because, you know, it's like the Jason Bourne movies, right? We, how many of us love those Jason Bourne movies? I'm told they're nothing like the books. So does that make the movies bad? I don't know, but I enjoyed them. I enjoyed Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher, but from what, I've, what I'm told, he's not the Jack Reacher described in the books. Okay. I think something can be spiritually true and like every property has a certain amount of elasticity. And after a certain while, those aren't the same characters. Like if your argument was, hey, Channing Tatum's Duke wasn't my Duke, wasn't Duke to me because like that's a reasonable conversation to have. But that's a different statement than saying Channing Tatum's Duke sucks because he's not the Duke I wanted. That's an entirely different statement. I think as G.I. Joe fans, we should never have the bar set low. But I think what we saw with this Bumblebee movie from Hasbro is that Bumblebee shows that Hasbro is taking its own approach to these properties. And again, I should be clear if anybody thinks I'm being super diplomatic about anything. Like, I'm not going to lie to y'all, but I work with many amazing folks at Hasbro, so I'm not going to be overly critical of people I know who are hardworking, awesome folks who love the properties. I loved Bumblebee. My wife and I saw an early screening here in LA, one of those Amazon screenings. It was a blast, and we had a great time. And like, that's still not how I would have thought Transformers would work. But it was awesome, and it makes me really excited to see what Snake Eyes is going to be. Because if you tell me I get a movie about a silent ninja and his pet wolf, I'm good. That's all I need. It can be whatever else you want it to be. As long as that wolf survives, we're good. I don't want it to be another John Wick with wolf dead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, give me, give me Timber and Snake Eyes uh, doing their thing. Give me Storm Shadow. And then, you know what? If, if Zartan doesn't happen to be part of the origin story for any of this stuff... I'm okay if you want to change things, if you find a cool way to approach this. I know that's heresy, but ultimately we have our G.I. Joe, right? Mike, you and I have had decades of perfect, amazing, wonderful G.I. Joe in the way we want it. And I'm really excited for a new generation to understand what we love so much about one of the greatest pop culture franchises of all time. Yes. Funny you mentioned that. Every time I see Jonathan Price in any movie, <laughs> yep. I, I always lean over to whoever I'm watching it with and say, it's Sartan. <laughs> trust no one it's Zartan oh that's great this yeah it's uh don't go to the movie I, I oh you forget about all the fun in the movie he was so great I think it's a good time to be a G.I. Joe fan with Snake Eyes on the horizon you see what Hasbro did with Bumblebee and how character focused and art I know you mentioned you hadn't seen it yet but they managed to give you the epic scale with all the Cybertron scenes but also the intimate stuff on Earth like Bumblebee and Charlie the character that Haley Steinfeld plays they had a great, wonderful relationship. It was a smart, fun movie. And I would argue that people looking at the box office of it are probably being a bit ignorant of the challenges of relaunching, repositioning, whatever the word is, um, a franchise like this. X-Men First Class is one of the most beloved X-Men movies, but it faced some box office difficulty in a much less competitive month. I mean, we had Aquaman come out, which is on track to surpass a billion dollars at the box office. You had Into the Spider-Verse drop, which I have not seen, but is hailed as the best superhero movie of of all time and is winning awards, like real awards, like real, real, real real prestigious awards. Yeah, if I can, if I can and, throw something in the middle of this, Arun, it's, yeah. it's incredible. I love Miles Morales. You guys know this when I would chat with you before. Like, I love the publicity efforts on breaking that news, and that's why Miles was on the front page of USA Today and uh, working with Brian Trude over there, who's also a giant G.I. Joe fan. I love that character. And Brian Bendis, Sarah Pacelli, and Sana Amina, and Mark Panicia, and everybody who was involved with that character at the time, all amazing people. And I couldn't be happier to see him being embraced as like as Spidey. Yeah, man. Like I think we should all be like I think Bumblebee. What we should be all happy about is there is a Hasbro property movie that is critically acclaimed, that I think did a really respectable box office given the competition, and I think we'll actually have an incredibly strong life on home video. Yeah, I have the numbers from IMDb and pulled them off earlier today. So they are the most recent ones that we can get our hands on. But this is all courtesy of IMDb.com. The budget for Bumblebee was an estimated $135 million. Opening weekend in the U.S. was on December 23rd, a couple days before Christmas for that push. $21.6 million. Gross in the U.S., $100,952,564. 
which is a little on the low side. It's still out there, uh, still kind of playing little engine that could. The retention on it has been pretty mm-hmm. good, and that that it's not been everybody's first choice through this holiday season, but they are getting back to it at least. And then cumulative worldwide gross to this point, again, as of 9 January, 308765624 So it's made its money back. It apparently had a big opening, especially in the Asian and European market. It did better mm-hmm. comparatively speaking to the U.S. markets. That's good, at least. We're not looking at, at a failure or a bomb by any stretch. I'm happy that if you went back through our, our previous couple episodes, I speculated myself that the success of Bumblebee would show a lot about how much they were willing to commit to Snake Eyes. But thankfully, they seem to be going ahead with Snake Eyes anyway. Regardless of, of what Bumblebee did, Snake Eyes was apparently on the schedule anyhow. So good for Snake Eyes, because if, if Snake Eyes gets this kind of a treatment, then Snake Eyes is going to be awesome. Yep. What's your wish list for Snake Eyes, Mike? Like, what, what is, I'm not sure if you covered this in the past one, but like, what's your must-have for that film? I don't know if I've got a must-have. I like how it was handled back in the day. If you go back to the comics, the Snake Eyes origin story was pretty much the G.I. Joe origin story, and it was very delicately handled. The main points in Snake Eyes' life were very much the main points in the, the formation of the team and the proto-form of, of G.I. Joe, where you saw Rock and Roll, and you saw Scarlet, and you saw Stalker, and you saw all these guys who would be important. I hope that they keep some of that. So I, I, I hope they don't go so far into the ninja stuff that they lose track of the commando stuff, because that's just as important in the formation of that, that very unique character. What's your favorite Snake Eyes costume? Is it the commando one? Is it the ninja one? Is it like the blue and gray, you know, like ninja force or whatever one? Like, what's your favorite version of them? I have to go with version two. I was 10 when that version two came out, and it, it blew my mind. Like, that thing in a toy store yeah. was like you were around for at least a week. I f- and I, what's more, like, cool enough, I did it twice. Because I found it once for me, and then a second time because my brother, who is one of the biggest Snake Eyes fans out there, yeah. found it in the store himself. I found his. So I was like Mr. Snake Eyes. So I, I, you know how my, my brother was a giant uh, Snake Eyes fan as a kid. It's actually part of the reason I have the Arashikage tattoos, uh, a reminder of, like, the importance of family and my brother. Who is still alive? They made it sound like he's dead, but he's like he's a, you know, it's 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 like a good reminder. And I was like, it's why it's on my wrist. You got to do it on your wrist or your forearm. He got we got our first uh, Snake Eyes. His was a version one, but we got it from India because a relative of ours there they had somehow GI Joe toys made it over there, and we got that's where we got our first Snake Eyes from. And I almost wish we'd kept the packaging and everything else. But it came from the Indian market. So that fun, was, fun yeah, that's how we got it. And then um, I know with, with God, am I thinking, I'm Ninja Force is, I think, what I'm thinking. I sound like such a noob. But that was the first time we got a Storm Shadow. But I have like a, one of the Marauders toys, army commando characters who's very clearly Snake Eyes sitting in front of me on my desk here. I think you just can't go wrong with Snake Eyes in general. They all look cool because Snake Eyes is the coolest. He's a character that, and again, I, I know I'm going to alienate some of our, our diehard fan fans because I, I understand the thinking when, when some of them kind of roll their eyes and they're, oh, Snake Eyes is just, he's done to death. He just, everything, mm-hmm. Snake Eyes, Snake Eyes, Snake Eyes. That's the guy. That's the, the, the moneymaker. That's the breadwinner. That's the guy who is so complicated that there's enough stories to tell to put at the heart of your comic book. That's the guy who very recently died and was reincarnated in somebody else's body and is still the engine of the book. Thankfully, it hasn't gotten to the point with Snake Eyes like it has with some other of these catch-fire kind of characters. Like, I can't think of more boring characters in comics today than Batman and Wolverine. Yeah. Because nothing new has been done with them in, in how long. And it's not a criticism what's come before, but it's how many Batman books can you pump out every month at DC and still expect to find something that gets people fired up? How many books with Wolverine can you pump out at Marvel every month and still expect it to keep people interested? And thankfully, we've never gotten to that point with Snake Eyes. You know, like how Bumblebee has become the entry point character for Transformers. Pretend like Snake Eyes is the optimist, for lack of a better term. Who would be your alternate as the entry point character? Like I'm selfishly think I would think Chuckles because of the great G.I. Joe Cobra series. Mm. But like who's the character you think that if Hasbro was to pivot, like which G.I. Joe character would be the one you think, oh, they could be like the Bumblebee. We could elevate them and they could become the person who has to be in the poster alongside Snake Eyes. Who is it? You know, good question. 
they wanted Ripcord to be that guy, and it yeah. didn't work. And then the second movie, I think they wanted Flint to be that guy, and mm-hmm. it didn't quite work out there either. So that that is a good question. I don't know who wears you the best, to be honest with you. I don't know if it has to be one character or another. I just think it has to be well done. If if that's my that'll be my cheap out answer. But I, I think <laughs> there's a kind of protoform characters in G.I. Joe that you could put in that role. When I was a kid, this would be the bulk of my playtime with G.I. Joe is 82 to 86. So when I was Mm -hmm. a kid, the guys who had a bigger role in my world than they did on the TV or in the comic tended to be Flash and Footloose. Just, I liked how they look. They're they're kind of polar opposites because Flash is is a real science fiction-y kind of guy and Footloose is a real, you know, straight out of the jungle in Vietnam kind of guy certainly opposite ends of the, the taste spectrum there but they were the guys who who were a bigger deal to me than they were in any of the media that was presented and i the great part of gi joe is everybody's can make that statement and put two different guys in it can i give you my like off the wall kind of answer for this one yeah i actually think scarlet or lady j would be my characters i know why some people will roll their eyes and they'll be like pc oh it's got to be a woman and because I think sometimes people think that's the reason you're doing it. No, the reason I'm saying that is because I was just reading. Oh, man, I'm sure all the military buffs here know what I'm talking about. They just talked about some woman who just earned, like, the, who was the first woman in the U.S. military to earn, to complete some special forces course. And I was looking at that thinking, man, that journey would be really interesting because the nuance of it being a woman in the military and in modern times must give the story a different angle than the angles we're necessarily used to. And I think Scarlet's such a fascinating character, and her history is fascinating. And I think Lady J, especially if you establish she's a child of a military background, so she's like a military legacy kid. I think those are interesting aspects that give you a, a, a richer, deeper kind of story. And then also give you different storytelling opportunities than if you just have the same protagonist every time. They had some like really cool nuanced stuff with Lady J and in, uh, in Retaliation. You could tell they were trying to establish. It felt like for her and her relationship was with her dad and what it meant to be part of G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. And her relationship to Joe Colton as a bigger. I, and, and obviously some of that was compressed given the runtime of the film. But like I feel there is certainly like story there that's really interesting. And that could give you a, a different into the story than with just Snake Eyes or Duke or, or whoever it is you typically might think of. And so those would be like the characters that come to mind for me that just give you a different way into it and allow you to draw from like the rich history of characters. So I think the one thing is like G.I. Joe, there's lots of awesome new characters who are created. I think G.I. Joe is a franchise with so many amazing characters. I actually don't know that you necessarily need any new ones. It's maybe just about being able to focus and flesh out other ones like I never would have thought Chuckles could be as awesome as he was till Christos Gage and Mike Costa and Antonio Fuso did Last Laugh. And once they wrote The Last Laugh, you're like, how did I never see this in Chuckles before? He's the best. I always thought Chuckles had a good run in Hama's book in the 80s. He was a little bit of an exposition character. Chuckles was always there to just, he was going to talk about what was happening. So all of us slow kids that didn't know how the underbelly of the government would get caught up. But that's not a bad role that makes your, your character seem really intelligent and really clever. Scarlet, really, that, that's not a choice that throws me in the least because they did it so many times, again, in the, in the classic comic book run. Yeah. And particularly in the origin story. The origin story was told by various members of the team at various times. That's kind of the neat part of that story in the old comic book, and, and it's, I hope that's some of the flavor that they keep in that part of it was told by Scarlet and part of it was yeah. told by Stalker. And part of it was told by Hawk. And, and so th- it was a different point of view every time through. And, and just the, the main thread through it all was that they were watching Snake Eyes. Because obviously Snake Eyes can't tell his own story. Once he becomes Snake Eyes, we don't want him to talk, correct? No. No. Yeah, so see. Uh, but I think that's good, right? Because that's what we got to have a must-have list. We're fans. We're neurotic. we got to have something. When it was really important to, to, to know what Snake Eyes was thinking, uh, mm-hmm. the journal entry was always the, the cheap out. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm okay with that. It's tougher, yeah. to, tougher to do on a movie screen, so I'm not sure how it would get done. And, and that's ultimately the challenge of Snake Eyes in, in these media. It's why he was not a big deal on the old Sunbow cartoons. You've got a mm-hmm. character that communicates 100% non-verbally, and that's something that can be done, but you're kind of pressed for time, so he's always worked best in a very static kind of environment, like a yeah. book, where you can just focus on a picture and what he's doing for a couple of seconds before you move on to the next one. 
So he's a dense read despite not having to say anything because you've got to read his actions and his body language and your artist has to be on point as far as what he's trying to convey. But that's to do in TV and movies because you know, you're know you firing a mile a minute, especially in these action-type military movies where things are blowing up and swords are flying and guns are firing and just a lot of kinetic action going on and so can get lost in the shuffle a little bit. I do think, though, a movie like The Quiet Place showed us you, you can do in a compelling action movie with quiet or yeah. with, with less dialogue. And look, I'm not saying that they're going to be using sign language. That's, Snake Eyes is using sign language the whole time. But I think the mainstreaming of sign language as like a cool, normal thing, which it is, you know, in film and in pop culture is great. And if Snake Eyes as a film can contribute to that in some way, maybe, some of the, maybe not on the battlefield, but when he's hanging out with people, if he's signing... I think that's actually an interesting way of expanding the character. I have a good friend whose parents are both deaf, and he learned sign language at a very young age, and his perspective on it and on the world as a result is actually really fascinating, and I have a greater appreciation for that and for learning sign language, and I'm, I need to, honestly, keep saying this, but I need to actually learn some because I realize how much of a difference it makes in people's lives to see people like yourself and I who, you know, who, who aren't deaf take the effort to like learn that and then use it as a normal thing and not treat it like this unusual or uncool thing. And there's so many awesome possibilities for Snake Eyes. And I'm, again, after seeing Bumblebee, I'm just excited. And man, you know what I'm really excited about? I'm excited about all the merchandise we'll get from this film. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be interesting because apparently for Snake Eyes starts spring of this year. We know that there's going to be something. Obviously, it's a Hasbro movie. There's got to be product tie-in. But you got me as far as what direction they're going to go. I, I have a feeling it's going to be the start of G.I. Joe being something very different than it was before. Yeah. And again, not that that's necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing at all. I think fans like you and I have to just be open-minded about the take. And then also there may come a t day in time when G.I. Joe is the most popular thing on Earth again, and we don't understand what it is. But I think we can take joy in knowing this means another generation is going to discover G.I. Joe. And that is ultimately a good thing. We've had our G.I. Joe. Like, I'm, I'm an old man. I've got a job. I've got money. I can go buy old G.I. Joes if I want. Yeah. This is about my kids and their kids and enjoying these characters the way that our grandparents enjoyed Superman and Batman before. Yeah. You know, that, that's what we're building here. America is a very new place, and so this is our mythology. This is, this is what's going to be remembered about us long after we're gone. Couldn't agree with you more. So, and I think that's the fun. It's, it's why everybody I think we meet who loves G.I. Joe, for the most part, we always can bond with because being a G.I. Joe fan, their G.I. Joe itself has a very specific set of morals and beliefs and sense of dignity and honor that transcend religion, race, age, gender, ethnic origin, all that stuff, because it just unites us. When you're a fan of G.I. Joe, it's like you believe in, I think, a spirit of teamwork and diversity and equality and heroism. That, yeah, it's layered into like the U.S. military, but it doesn't feel like that to me, right? I don't look at G.I. Joe and think, rah, rah, USA. Like, I'm proud to be an American citizen, and I'm proud to be American. But when I look at G.I. Joe, to me, like, G.I. Joe represents this idea, uh, idyllic hope for tomorrow and the diversity that's naturally built into it and the mix of personalities. But it also represents the, the pragmatism and realism and acknowledgement of, like, the world is a complicated place and we have to work together to always fight that evil. Yeah. But we can do it without sacrificing our souls. Like, G.I. Joe, to me, doesn't need to be dark and gritty. The Larry Hama stuff, we all agree that the, the holiest of holy grails for G.I. Joe is a hugely optimistic thing. The good guys win the war, but the bad guys do win some battles. But the good guys don't sacrifice their dignity. They, they make hard choices. We don't always agree with them. They don't sacrifice their honor and dignity. And I think that makes G.I. Joe so special. And I hope that is all that is never lost as time goes on. To add to that, everybody knows, of course, Cobra is the main villain in the G.I. Joe story. You go back to those old comics, and probably the second biggest villain was the U.S. government. Yeah. <laughs> Look at Cobra Commander's origin, like how incredibly prescient was that origin? And I don't want to get political because I don't want to get into people's beliefs. So this isn't about current or recent political analogs, but you can see the rhetoric Cobra Commander uses reflected in rhetoric over decades, right? Mm -hmm. In politics all over the world. And his origins in middle America are super fascinating. It just shows you how ahead of its time it was. Like I remember in the early aughts rereading that G.I. Joe special missions issue. I think it was maybe the first issue where they, uh, or second issue where they had the plane that's captured by terrorists. That's the first. And like that story is just as relevant now as it was then. Or 
it, they Actually, absolute it was, brilliance. It was the backup story in, in issue number fifty before we get a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Arun, what a fake GI Joe fan. You know what? I don't remember it all. That is why I'm on this podcast, not hosting this podcast. <laughs> hey, I was right there with you, flubbing it up. But yeah, the the great part of Cobra Commander is if you can't identify with part of Cobra Commander, yeah. Yeah. Then you're lying. Yeah. And I remember Greg Rucka, the legendary comic writer. He also wrote Queen and Country, an amazing book. He's writing Lazarus, a great series in Image Comics right now. He's also just a great human being. He's a former paramedic. He's as cool as they come. He was talking about Ra's al Ghul or Ra's al Ghul, whatever you want to say it, the Batman villain, saying what makes him a good villain is that he's like, look, Bruce or whoever he's talking to, like, look, I want to save the world. And you're like, yeah, yeah. He's like, we have to fight corrupt politicians. We have to save the environment. We have to bring decency back to society. You're like, yeah, yeah. He's like, and so we're going to do it by bombing Gotham City. And you're like, wait, wait, what? Like, whoa, whoa, you just took me off a ledge. I can't jump off with you. And like, that's like the, to me, that's always what a good antagonist or a good villain is in these stories. You have to understand why they're the hero of their own story. You know, like Magneto is one of those ultimate versions of that character. Yeah. Cobra Commander feeling screwed over as the little guy. I can't wait till people fact check this. And they're like, Rooney wasn't just a little guy. He ran a car dealership, whatever. He was, uh, he like, as a guy who felt slighted in middle America, as a middle-class American, who saw the injustices within the, the democracy he loved so much. Yeah, I understand where it started. And then the application of that frustration we disagree with, you better. But like, you can understand how he got there, and that's what makes such a good villain. And that's what makes someone like Destro so interesting, right? Like, Destro is this wonderfully, seemingly amoral character. Whenever I've read Destro, I've always read him as a character. And I'm sure, again, someone will reference the G.I. Joe comic that were maybe this is more explicit, but I always read Destro as a guy who wasn't looking at the morality of his actions as much as he looked at life as a series of choices to me. And he was like making the choices that resulted in the profit and that. Everyone within that capitalist or military-industrial complex had a choice. He was just making his choice. I always thought that was super fascinating about when he looked at him and the Baroness and their relative morality or amorality. What an interesting group of bad guys, right? Yeah. Like, that's just so cool. And then you get Tomax and Zamot. That, that group of characters is a thoroughly modern group of supervillains. That is amazing. I'll put them up against any group of Marvel villains. As equally interesting, oh no, if not more, absolutely. They're they're very much in that that great supervillains of history kind of pantheon. Destro, to me, anytime the question comes up, what's the difference between morals and ethics? The answer is Destro. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That should just... be in textbooks. Yeah, yeah that's that, great. It really, it's it's Destro. Yeah. Just he's always going to make you a square deal. Mm -hmm. the, he's he's going to give you exactly what you want. He's going to give you to you at a at a price he thinks is fair. And oh yeah, it's all arms designed to just blow the hell out of people, topple governments yeah, like, and, and impose tyranny. Yeah, oh um, great. A Destro movie, man. Like imagine what you could because if you think about like something like John Wick, right? Like there's no reason to think John Wick is a good guy. It just happens that people killed his dog, so he is not the bad guy in these movies. <laughs> and by the way, worst, that's a spoiler a for you. Guy I'm fighting yeah. worse guys. Yeah, but like um, I, like a Destro origin story movie or like year one story with him would be fascinating because on some level, unless you, I don't know enough about amorality or in like how, and, and in terms of can someone be born being amoral? Do you develop being amoral? How does that work? And But imagine a Destro movie and seeing him like abandon the sense of, of morality and adopt, like you said, a strict code of ethics instead to replace it. That's a really fascinating psychological thriller. And I, yeah, I also want to see giant Mars weapon. I want to see like, you know, the briefcase and everything else. And I want to see the metal mask. But I also think that character has nuances. And really, he can be the hero of your story if you want him to be. Uh, you just have to want him to be because it's there. There is nothing in G.I. Joe in the, you know, the Larry Hama Marvel iteration of it, especially that feels inherently dated as a character. Like there may be things around the edges, right? Like maybe... As we've evolved with our understanding of how we depict race or gender, you know, like we all mature so that the depiction of characters matures, though, of course, I think Larry did a pretty bang up job in his books. Think about what they created, though, that set of characters, the situation, the organization is perfect. And look, let's state the obvious. It's S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA, right? Just our favorite version of S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA. It was built to be timeless.
that is the interesting challenge for Hasbro now with G.I. Joe going forward. There's these um, two, in my mind, again, I'll be corrected, these two distinct eras of G.I. Joe. There's the original larger figure era, the adventure team era, whatever we're calling it. And then there is the Larry Hama, that, that three and three quarter era. I wonder if there's like a third era ever. Is there a world where you have G.I. Joe and has an all new set of characters? Or is it like, is there G.I. Joe, the next generation? I don't know. And I, I don't have a strong opinion. I'm guessing you might or other fans might. But it's going to be to see what that franchise turns into. Yeah, I don't see them moving to a new set of characters. I think there's too much instead in, in the characters that exist that are bankable. You can build on Duke, you can build on Snake Eyes, you can build on Scarlet, and thanks to the rock roadblock, you've got your core of guys. Obviously, there's going to be some moving parts with some of the rest, but I think it's got its personality, and in this day and age where the recognizability of your brand is so much a part of being able to, to be put into the media, I don't see them hitting the reset button on that. I agree. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what that future looks like. So that uh, extolled the virtues of G.I. Joe, part one. <laughs> part one in a 13-part series. I'm excited, man. I'm, I think the future is very bright for G.I. Joe, and there's a lot of cool people at Hasbro who are really passionate about this. So I'm excited to see what's next. Speaking of what's next, what are we moving on to next in this well, discussion? I, I actually wanted to get to a few things before we got too far away from Boom Studios. Okay. Uh, but later this month, and this is one of the reasons why you were ushered in for this special edition in January, but at the end of this month, you've got a special event happening, don't you? I do. I find a few, and uh, I, again, speaks to the kindness of Joe fans. You know, I have worked in marketing and publicity, and what people may not realize is before I got into that, I was pitching comic book stories, original creations, and I'm looking back, whew, I'm glad they never got published. But like, you know, good intentions and all, man, I really didn't know what I was doing, though I had genuine passion. My making my comic book writing debut in a comic called WWE Forever, number one. It is a anthology with multiple stories. I wrote an eight page story featuring Erwin R. Scheister, a.k.a. IRS, and that tells the origin, the untold origin of how he and the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase formed their tag team of uh, Money Incorporated. The story features art by uh, Kendall Good, who's a really great artist. He's done a book called The Doorman with a buddy of mine, Elliot Rahal, and also done a bunch of great WWE stories beforehand. So mine is one of the stories. It's an anthology with a lot of great talent who are telling stories about Razor Ramon and Ted DiBiase and Bret Hart and all of those but for me, it was a dream come true to tell this story. I was a big fan of IRS as a kid. I just liked that. I liked him, even though he was a bad guy. And it's funny, we were just talking about Destro, but my challenge in this story, I thought, was to figure out a way that IRS, who was a bad guy, who was always booed, could be the hero of the story. And that if you read it, you would feel like you were on his side. And so I'm really proud of it. I feel like we accomplished that. It's really a short eight-page story about the codes we live by and why we live by them. You know, I'm, I'm really excited by it, and my hope is to do more with uh, WWE and WWE stories here. People, people know I'm a big pro wrestling fan, and I love WWE, and I'm excited to be able to say I have contributed in that way to it and pursuing other creative endeavors here at Boom Studios as well. So my hope is that I will have if the story is as well received as I hope it will be, and if I come up with the right next pitches, that I'll um, have a chance to tell some more stories here at Boom because this is my comic book home, and I'd love to to do more here. But no matter what, this is a dream come true, and I'm really looking forward to holding the comic in my hands because I think it's going to be kind of unreal. Now, I'm I'm not that familiar with the WWE comic. I've, I've seen it. Sure. I've flipped through it a few times. For folks who maybe aren't in tune with that world now. Does it take place in this kayfabe universe where they really just show up at one another? Or is so absolutely like the Undertaker is Undertaker. He's not Mark Calloway, you know. Like he, that's part of the joy of it. Actually, is that I wrote a story. Erwin R. Scheister, his real name Mike Rotunda. His kids are in WWE right now as, under the wrestling names of Bray Wyatt and Bo Dallas. And so, there's if your fans, there's some Easter eggs in the story to, to that that you'll appreciate, but. Yeah, we tell the stories in continuity. WWE is an active partner, of course, in all this. So we're not writing stories that contradict what you've seen on screen. Now, we're also not acknowledging that there is some measure of premeditation in the art of pro wrestling. And so for me, that's part of the reason I set my story outside of the wrestling ring. I've shown a couple of pages online and you'll see Bret Hart because, again, I love Canada. Uh, Bret Hart and IRS fighting as some guys watch their match on a VHS tape. Because the story is set in the early 90s. 
but the rest of the story takes place outside the wrestling ring because IRS has been kidnapped by some thugs who think he actually works for the IRS. And so they can't separate reality from wrestling, which is part one of the in-jokes in the story. But it's all done in a respectful manner. And like I think the WWE product, especially if you haven't watched it recently, has evolved a lot. And it's actually found a way to blur the lines between kayfabe, you know, what happens in the ring in real life. And it kind of keeps you guessing sometimes how much is real. And the most successful wrestling has always infused a bit of reality and realness. The Rock always said the character that Dwayne Johnson played as The Rock was just him with the volume turned up to 11. And I think that's what makes these, it even makes writing these stories successful is if you treat this stuff seriously and you ground it in some real emotion and real storytelling, then people will be captivated. And so I'm not here to say that I'm going to captivate you because that sounds pretentious. But uh, I will say, I think we delivered a fun as hell story and I'm really proud of it. And Kendall, he makes me look good with his art. It's amazing. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm at Arun, A-R-U-N-E, uh, or on Instagram, Arun Singh, A-R-U-N-E-S-I-N-G-H. When the issue comes out, I'll preview a few more pages there and be posting about it. And Mike, I want to genuinely say this, like, it means the world to me that that factored into you calling me and, and it, that it factored into you wanting to promote it. Because that means a lot to me, man. It really does. Like, this is, I hope, the start of something. And people like you supporting me is what's going to really help me get to that next level. So thank you. I tell everybody who's been on the show, and sometimes it even makes it into the show, you ever need us for anything, say something. That's the G.I. Joe spirit, right? Yeah. Like, that's... And you'd it's be like amazed the, how rarely that actually happens is, yeah. is the funny part. Like, yeah. It's like, I, I was afraid it was actually going to happen in December because I knew it was coming up. Yeah. But it was like, oh, crap, did I miss it? And it's like, oh, no, there it is. So <laughs> this is all going to work out. It's like, imagine if you were a Superman fan and you were, like, really racist. Like, it just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, like, at the... I mean, trust me, it comes up, but it's like, uh, I was like, what did you learn? Or if you're like a bully and you're a Superman fan, I'm like, I think you learned the wrong lesson from all this, man. That is, uh, it's, it's, it's been an honor. Look, it's been an honor. And a big thank you to my editor, Chris Rosa, who, uh, who took a shot on me. I'm a new writer and I was evaluated like any writer here, which is conduct all of my business about writing outside of the office. I pitch outside of the office. I use my, like, my own Gmail account for it. And I'm evaluated on that. And Boom is not going to say no if I don't submit a good idea. And Chris uh, took a flyer on the idea I did not think was going to get approved, but I'm so glad it did because I'm always attracted to characters who have smaller, more intimate stories. It's like, I love Captain America, but my favorite version of Captain America is John Walker, who was U.S. agent who became Captain America because I found his story so fascinating. Dysfunctional as heck, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And absolutely. There's some absolutely interesting, I think, emotional, psychological ground to cover with that character. And I've always said if there was one Marvel character, I would love to write a uh, U.S. agent miniseries. Good friend Don Cates a few years ago. And uh, before he took over Venom and became, and became the hottest writer in comics, he's still a dear friend. He's a brother to me. And we were talking about uh, Force Works. And I was like, and I had ideas about U.S. agent even then. And I was like, you know what? I actually think there's got to be a way you make ForceWorks cool because ForceWorks kind of felt like a punchline for a lot of people. Even the name ForceWorks sounds really try-hard. Yeah. But there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And I think some of those comics are really fun. And I always look at that kind of stuff as a challenge. And like Jeff Johns, you know, the legendary DC writer and executive who made his career on taking characters people didn't always think of as their favorite and taking what was perceived as negatives and turning them into positives. He made Aquaman cool. We wouldn't have that Aquaman movie without what Jeff did on Aquaman. He made the Justice Society of America cool. He made Stars and Stripes cool. He did all this great stuff. And he just looked and said, I don't see defects. I see opportunities. I see territory to explore. If we don't think it's cool, my job is to show you what's cool. Jeff's also a friend, and that's not me name dropping. I've, just, I've been working in comics in some form for almost 20 years. And I'm 37, and I've been very lucky to have that time in comics. I always look at what Jeff did, what Donnie did with Venom. And I look at writers I, I groove on always try to find what's interesting in a character. And I look at someone like IRS who feels like, uh, as a wrestler, you may have wondered like, oh, he was this tax guy who was chiding people for being tax cheats. And I said, okay, cool. So why did he do that? What motivates him? And if you treat him like a real character and show respect to that character, you'll find the truth in him that allows you to th tell a story you find interesting. So if I hope people find the story as interesting as I do. That's what I tried to do. And with U.S. Agent, that's a character where I've, uh, there's a few things when I was talking to Donnie that I just hooked into. And I'm like, oh, this is what this character is to me. This is why I enjoy it. I used to think it was because I thought of him like a Jack Bauer of the Marvel Universe. He was the guy who will cross any line to save America. But I actually think there's something much more intimate and nuanced about that character. 
is all there in the origin that I think it comes out of reverence that I'd love to do one day. And then if I had a chance at DC to ever write a character, Hawkman's my favorite DC character besides Superman. There's something like hugely romantic about these two characters, reborn over lifetimes, always finding each other, falling in love. But I think I have, as someone of Hindu and Sikh religious origin, I'm not strictly religious myself, but those are my faiths. I believe in reincarnation, and so I have, I think, a slightly more Eastern philosophy about reincarnation than maybe many of the writers who have approached Hawkman have, and I think there's a few ideas I'd love to integrate into that, but I also just love the DC universe. That would be the character I'd love to write one day, and luckily we have Robert Venditti, Brian Hitch doing a fun Hawkman series right now, but those are like... My aspirations, honestly, with all this is just to be able to write fun stories and people to enjoy them and create some of my own stuff. And maybe that happens, or maybe I'm the guy who wrote one WWE story and that's all I did. But let me tell you, like, I don't say that lightly. I got to write a comic. Yeah, dude, that's eight more That comic's coming out January 30th. Yeah, <laughs> I win. Did you get a chance to pick the brain of, of Mike Rotunda? No, no, that's not how the process necessarily works because I think then they need to get paid for that. You know, like I think when Chris submitted something to WWE, you know, that goes through the appropriate review channels. I imagine, mm-hmm. especially with alumni held in such high regard as DiBiase and Mr. Rotunda, that that is vetted through their appropriate channels and through the appropriate parties to make sure we're respectful. I hope they enjoy it. I genuinely really hope they enjoy it. Nothing would make me happier to hear than to hear that Mike Rotunda appreciated the story and agreed with it. And if he said, ah, I hated it, I'd survive. I just wouldn't be thrilled about it. <laughs> but, you know, no one knows the character of IRS better than uh, Mike Rotunda. So I would, if he said, you missed the mark, I would say, I'm happy with my story and I missed the mark. So I think two things can be true. I always really was a big fan of everything he did. And so I'm hopeful he digs this too, but... That's the part of writing. I, I, I'm stealing myself for the first bad review because as I reread, every every time I reread the story, I'm like, oh man, maybe I could have tweaked that dialogue or done something different. And like, perfect is the enemy of great. And I'm like, cool, I got it done. Everyone seemed happy enough with it. I don't know anybody who doesn't look at stuff and say there's a better way I could have done it. And so it's my first story. I'll let it be. You know, one day the opportunity ever came up to write G.I. Joe or Transformers. You best believe I'd be interested in doing that, too. So you never know where life will take you. Very true. Very, very true. If you do it wrong the first time, you'll know because they won't ask you back for anything. (laughs) (laughs) When they're burning copies of it on your front lawn, maybe not such a great job. As longtime listeners will know, but maybe newer listeners might not know, um, writer Fred Van Lente named the character Hashtag after me because her name is Aruna Singh. I'm Arun Singh. She had a journalism background. I was a comics journalist for a number of years. If I, I, I have to be honest with you, if, if uh, I ever got a chance to write G.I. Joe and they had a similar thing and they said, who do you want to write the eight-page story about? It's hashtag, which means I'll have lots of people unhappy with me, but that would be the challenge. So we would see how that goes. There are stories for that character to be told. Look at that diplomacy. I love it. You're not necessarily <laughs> teaming her up with Ricondo and throwing them in the middle of the jungle, but there are stories <laughs> to be told. Yep. One yeah, other that's, question. Um, thank you again. One other question I had about a yes, Boom Studios book, and it was one that I wasn't aware of until all these end-of-the-year lists started popping up last week. Cool. Uh, invariably, those lists are always populated by what DC and Marvel books people are, are into mm-hmm. at the moment. And that's fair. They control a large amount of, of the rack. Yeah. But the one that I saw pop up on more than one list, and I, I wish I was keeping better track of what I was reading when it was, was Abbott. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Honestly, I was feeling guilty not mentioning it. Yeah, Abbott is a supernatural mystery thriller. Imagine like a, it's kind of like a Black Lotus Lane story set in 1970s Detroit by the Eisner Award-winning writer Saladin Ahmed and artist Sammy Cavella. And it's an, a really cool book about this journalist who is investigating threat in Detroit that ties into the death of the murder of her husband. And she has a supernatural ability, and it's a five-issue limited series that we released last year. It's available in a graphic novel collection, trade paperback, whatever term you want to use in stores right now. And I'm really glad, actually, Mike, I'm really glad to hear that that broke through because, you know, they got a lot of pickup in Detroit in the local papers there, and it got some national coverage with NPR. That book continues to be really on on so many end-of-year lists in 2019. We see that get a whole bunch of nominations, whether it be the Eisner Awards or the Ringo Awards or whatever awards. It's a really great book. You probably haven't had a chance to read it yet, right? I have, I have not had a chance to get my hands on a copy. I've gone, I've looked for it a couple times. I have not been successful. 
Well, we will, uh, you and I will chat after, and we're going to take care of that for you. Probably with a few other goodies in there, too. Yeah, that book actually sold out incredibly quickly. We had a pretty significant print run on it, and we had to go back to print before the first printing even hit stores because it was so, the excitement over it was so huge. And that is thanks to all the wonderful independent bookstores we work with, Barnes and then Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all the libraries we work with, people really committing to a series with a new concept. And those are, those are hard to sell in this market. People want the familiar. You brought it up. Look, Marvel and DC are 70% of the comic book market, you know, like mm-hmm. the comic shop market. And it's really hard to break through. And then if you look at the book scan numbers for the best-selling graphic novels in bookstores, besides like something like Dogman, which if you have kids, you know Dogman. Raina Telgemeier and her books. And if you have, uh, especially if you have daughters, you know Raina Telgemeier. Other than that, it's a lot of stuff like My Hero Academia, which I love, and other manga that is dominates and so it could sometimes squeeze out attention on original projects you know one of the strengths of boom studios is we have a diverse array of characters who are queer who are black who are white who are asian who are whatever very any origin any identity we want to make sure you see yourself at boom studios we want to make sure you find your story here you discover yourself a bit here and that's in part of what made i think abbott so interesting is that it was a story that very much has relevance to modern day time but being able to tell it in Having Saladin tell that story in 1970s Detroit just gave it a different kind of cool feel. And I think, Mike, you're really going to dig it when you get it. So we're going to make sure you get a copy of it. Sweet. There's also another book you might have seen on some list, too, if you're like a Dungeons & Dragons fan or a, like a Japanese RPG fan. It's a book called Coda by uh, Cy Spurrier and Matthias Bergera. It's like a broken fantasy. We call it a broken fantasy story. It's like Mad Max meets Lord of the Rings. And if you need anything else besides that description... Let me know, but that should get you in the door. Basically, it's what happens after the bad guys win, and the good guy, he has a mission to save the soul of his wife. He's a bard, and it's uh, this cool fantasy world with, we don't have unicorns, we have pentacorns. And it's a really cool, really cool book. That's another one I'll make sure you get as well. And if I can offer one last suggestion, there's a new series. We just released the first collection of it exclusively at comic shops, so go to your local comic shop, called Bone Parish. It's written by Cullen Bunn, with art by Jonas Scharf. And it's about a new drug that hits the street of New Orleans. It's called ash. It's made from the ash of, of bones from dead bodies. And when you snort, when you use the drug, you get to relive memories whose ever the ashes you're snorting. And it's about this drug war between the family that created the drug and like some other cartels moving in. It's a really introspective story about family along with a lot of cool crime stuff. But it's about this family and what it means for them to run this empire and what they've lost and how it's affecting their family. It is Sopranos mixed with a bunch of cool supernatural stuff. And Cullen Bunn, if you know him, he's made his bones on, uh, no pun intended, on like supernatural stuff. And uh, from The Sixth Gun to books like Bone Parish here, probably read his X-Men stuff, his Green Lantern stuff. And so he's an incredibly talented writer. So Bone Parish, Coda, and I think Abbott. For, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of the G.I. Joe audience we're talking to right now. Those are books you should check out. But you also, frankly... If you dig Power Rangers, check out our Power Rangers book. It is bananas. Our big story last year was an event called Power Rangers Shattered Grid, in which an evil alternate universe version of Tommy Oliver, the Green Ranger, is a supervillain Power Ranger called Lord Draken, who killed every Power Ranger on his planet and took the power coins. And he's trying to basically go across every Power Rangers reality and timeline and kill all the Rangers and steal their powers. That is, it's like the biggest, it's the first Power Rangers comic book event and honestly one of the biggest stories ever told. And if you want to know how cool this is, Jason David Frank, the original green Power Ranger, along with Kyle Higgins, who wrote Power Ranger Shattered Grid, uh, who was one of the primary writers of it, they created a live action short film that was like two minutes long of Jason David Frank as this evil version of Tommy the Green Ranger. So as Lord Draken commanding his army of Power Ranger sentries. It's super, super cool. If you just YouTube it, you'll find it. Search Power Rangers Shattered Grid. You'll find this live action video they made. You'll be in. If you have any nostalgia for Power Rangers, you'll absolutely be in. And that's a really great book to check out. Awesome. That is something I'll give a look to. Bringing that material into a little bit more of, a, of an adult context. And not, not adult adult, but like an all ages kind yeah. of context as opposed to just a kid's context. That's a lot more appealing to me than normal Power Rangers fare. Yeah, absolutely. And they're aimed at different demographics, right? It's like you think about bot bots and Transformers. I know everyone's going to be like, why do you keep bringing up Transformers? But it's because it's about how much faith they have in Hasbro. Bot bots is great for little kids. They've had like the Transformer animated. And then so as older Transformers fans had the IDW Transformers comics. 
and you also have the movies for different audiences. So I think, uh, you know, you still have the TV show that's aimed at a arguably younger audience for Power Rangers, but having a comic that skews a bit more to teen and adult without being dark and gritty, I think it's really fun to have. I think when you do it right, you get the Larry Hama G.I. Joe. See, I brought it all around, which was Hama's G.I. Joe is, is eternal and it was mature without being gratuitous, you know? It told you stories that resonate with us till this day, even if I forget the issue numbers. The silent issue, They'll that was issue number that was issue number twenty-six, right? Right, Mike? No. I'm i I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, someone's head just exploded. Yeah. I but uh probably my brother Rob. Yeah. Sorry, Rob. Twenty-one, great. Those are stories that you don't need to add blood or exit wounds or swearing. You could, but you don't need it. And I think the best stories you feel like, oh, cool. They just they tell me the best story and whatever was there felt like the story needed it. Nothing felt gratuitous. And that's the best kind of storytelling. So that's what I think Boom did with Power Rangers. And then we're doing with Buffy and Firefly. And there's a, I, I can tell you this. I promise you, if you love comics, there's a Boom Studios book for you. And that's not me trying to like hawk it. It's the reason I work here. Yeah. It's the reason I work here because there's something for everyone. And I felt like this is a place that makes something for everybody, whether it be your sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, whether you're male, female, non-binary, however you identify, queer, straight, whatever. There's the, We have books that you are represented in, and we want to make sure that ultimately you can always find your story here, and that, that's always our goal. And so it's a blast to work here. And it honestly just makes me so happy to hear you mention Abbott. That's great. And you'll be enjoying that book very soon. Been looking forward to that one. Excellent. Arun, you got anything else? You know, like I said, G.I. Joe fans are the best. And I am I also want to shout out to my buddy Chris Ryle, who's back at IDW. I'm sure you guys will, when you have the full crew here, go into in-depth what that means for you guys as G.I. Joe fans and with your opinions on the G.I. Joe line of books. But what I will say is that, you know, Chris is, is a really good guy. I've known him for, I think, a decade. I wish him all the success. Comics are better with Chris and comics, and I think IDW produced a lot of great G.I. Joe comics with him at the helm. And I'm, uh, Not that they were bad without him, at the, without him at the helm or anything, but he's a great dude to have there who really loves these Hasbro brands, so I think he's going to uh, make sure G.I. Joe fans get taken care of. Excellent. Arun Singh. Yes, sir. Title again? I am Vice President Marketing at Boom Studios. Excellent. See, I was going to screw that up. Yeah, don't worry. I screwed up enough stuff here, so uh, we're, I think we're even. It's 21, Arun. <laughs> I had a single issue, but I'm trying to like track down a good like graded version of it, like the 9.8 CGC graded version of that issue, the first printing. And one, they're expensive, so mm-hmm. I'm not pretending like I have that money yet. But like finding one is not easy. Mm-hmm. Like I find third printings and second printings, but like that is like that's a good four-figure purchase I, on ebay at least sometimes when it's actually been graded and so that is gonna be that's like one of my things i've I, i've gotten a little bit into those graded comics because my boss ross Ritchie, he's a ceo and a founder of boom studios he's got a passion for for that side of comics as well and so like i've been picking up some comics from my youth like green lantern 51 the first issue where kyle rayner was in his new green lantern costume or like X-Men number one by Jim Lee and Chris Claremont. Like I have those graded because they didn't cost a lot, but they're pieces of my childhood. Now I'm looking at like my Holy Grails and like, yeah, G.I. Joe 21 is definitely one of them. I have this oversized G.I. Joe. It's in my desk right now. An oversized G.I. Joe Marvel Treasury Edition. It's number one signed by Herb Trimpey that was given to me randomly at a gift at San Diego Comic-Con by a fan who came up to me and said, hey, thanks for being on What's on Joe Mind. And he gave this to out. me. Yeah, and I have it sitting here, and I, it's too big to actually get graded in the way that, like, you see, they, they, they do what people call slabbing comics. They, like, seal them in this in these pla- in plastic that keeps them safe and allows you to maintain the grade, kind of like when you put card in those screw cases. And, like, I have this G.I. Joe comic, so there's no case big enough for it, but I have it sitting here at my desk because, uh, and I'm looking at it right now, and, it, yeah, Herb's signature is right all over the G., it's in pretty decent shape, but I really don't care. It's just like it's in a bag and a board. For me, this is it's just it's one of my it's one of my most prized possessions. And this is incredibly cool to me. I also have like the hardcover um, version of a silent interlude that my buddy Russ got me signed by Larry Hama. So like I've been very blessed to have G.I. Joe fans who just said, Hey, you're a fan too, spreading the love. Let me share some love. So I always try to, whenever I meet other G.I. Joe fans, pass on that love and like, oh cool, let me hook you up with something too, because G.I. Joe fans, let me just conclude with this. G.I. Joe fans are the best. 
Are there probably moments where G.I. Joe fans haven't been the best? Yes. And I don't want to wade into those previous waters of controversy because we don't need to relitigate the past. But I will say my experience is G.I. Joe fans have been the most welcoming, kind, incredible fandom I can imagine. Though I will say Power Rangers fans are right up there. I went to my first Power Morphicon last summer for work, and those fans were amazing. They're young. You know, they, They're pardon? young. Life hasn't beaten them up yet. Yeah, well, they've yeah. Power Rangers have continued for twenty five years straight, so they've been they've been serviced. They're a great fandom too, man. And but I say GI Joe fans just have a special place in my heart. Clearly, it's inked on my body and with the Rashikage symbol. Thank you. I just want to say thank you. Like thank you guys. You know, not only you, Mike, but in the past, everybody we you know, whether it be Gary, Justin, Chuck, everybody we talked with. I still maintain a friendship with John Chu to this day because of this podcast. Those are things that never would have happened without G.I. Joe. Hold up now. Does he still talk about his appearance on What's on Joe Mike? <laughs> I have not asked him about it, but it is the reason that we still talk. Because uh, that's how we got to know each other. And I, uh, you know, so... Um, Tell him I said hello and make sure you, uh, you do about when the third movie got bumped back. Again. I will. I will absolutely do. tweeted him many times about how I wish we got his 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 ninja movie. I actually ran into him at the offices at Sci-Fi when he was working on Gem. It was around the same time he had to be at the NBC Universal's lot that day. Mm. And he's a, he's a great, warm guy. I saw him again a couple of years ago at the Asian American Comic-Con that was hosted out here. And he was in the audience attending that. And I was on a panel there. And he's a great guy. And G.I. Joe is one of the best things that can happen to you in life. If you let it, if you give it a chance, as you guys all know, um, and I sound like a cult leader now, spreading the gospel of Cobra Law, but if you let G.I. Joe into your life, it is so constantly rewarding. And I think in those times, like now, maybe where the news is a bit quieter and it feels like things have cooled down and you look at Target and you wish there were some pegs with G.I. Joe figures, in those moments, I do think it's good to take a moment and reflect and like, look how much G.I. Joe has given us. Look at the community that we have. Look at the people we get to know the amazing people. And honestly, Mike, you're among them. And every one of us should be thanking you for continuing to champion the brand the way you do. As a fan, thank you. Because not all fandoms have people who would put the years, the years into this. Not all people have fans who would look for every opportunity to help and help others. And like, man, that's G.I. Joe. And I'm, I could not be more proud to be a G.I. Joe fan. And it's everybody listening to this podcast, everyone who's been involved in What's in Joe Mind that make me that proud. And so thank you to all of you, because that's something I get to carry with me every day. And I, I stand a bit taller because I know I'm part of this community. Awesome. I can't add anything to that. <laughs> so I will just once again, thank you, Arun Singh, Vice President of Marketing for Boom Studios, for being our very special guest this evening. Here's what I'm telling you, Mike. When you guys do your Snake Eyes movie review podcast or like Impressions podcast, I got to be on it, man. I got to continue my tradition. We started, I was there with Retaliate. I got to be here for this one too. I mean, I wasn't on the immediate feedback episode, but I remember that in the hour and a half on a treadmill that I listened to it. So I, uh, oh, it's one of I our short ones then. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was when you didn't have much time that day. But I want to make sure that I'm part of that because this is an amazing fandom. And as more stuff comes up, we're definitely going to be in touch. And thank you again. Absolutely, sir. Anytime. Anytime you need a microphone and a chair, by all means. Thank you. Once again, Arun Singh, Vice President of Marketing at Boom Studios. You are awesome. Thanks for your time.
walk that walk and talk that talk and whisper in my ear. Tell me she love me. I love that talk, that baby talk. Did not mean that. Right off my feet. 